Hello, beautiful ladies. Welcome back to the Wealthy Woman Podcast. Before we dive into the specifics of each human design type and how that type interacts with money, we're going to dive into some money strategy. I had the opportunity to interview Chloe Daniels, the founder of Clobear Money Coach and the Lazy Investors course on how to create wealth through lazy investing. I found Chloe on Instagram. I'm not quite sure how I stumbled upon her profile, but immediately as I started to scroll through, I knew that she was someone that I needed to invite onto the podcast. So Chloe is a money coach. She's focused on helping people learn how to invest and build wealth the lazy way. She's been featured on CNBC Plus, Acorns, Entrepreneur, Bloomberg, Business Insider, Time, and more. Her ultimate goal is to provide education in a fun, easy to understand, and accessible way. She's known for her reels and TikToks that showcase her terrible dance moves while also providing finance tips. And she can be found on Instagram and TikTok at Clobear Money Coach or at Clobear. So Chloe is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to lazy investing, and she's going to dive into what that actually means. But when I heard the term lazy investing, I know that I was immediately intrigued. I was like, I need to find out what this is. I want to learn more about it because investing can be a very daunting topic, especially for women. And when you say the word investing or you think about investing, it can feel very complex. It can feel very much out of your reach. And so Chloe makes investing very accessible. So let's cut to the chase and jump right in. I cannot wait for you to listen to this conversation. Welcome to the Wealthy Woman Podcast. You're here because you're a high-achieving woman that wants it all. The success, wealth, time freedom, and genuine joy in your life. Hi, I'm Lauren, and I'm here to tell you, you can. You can have it all. But what is true wealth? It's not just money and achievements because success without happiness and fulfillment isn't success at all. Here, we're going to have conversations about creating a beautiful life alongside the success that you're striving for. If you want to create long-lasting success that's fully in alignment with the life you desire to live by working less, making more, and stepping into the version of yourself you've always wanted to be, then you're in the right place. Let's roll into today's episode. Hello, gorgeous ladies. I am so excited that you are here today because like I mentioned previously, May is money month here on the Wealthy Woman Podcast and Chloe Daniels is joining me today. I could not be more excited for our little chat and for you guys to really tap into Chloe's wealth of knowledge when it comes to investing. So Chloe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lauren. I love that you were like tying it back into money by being like her wealth of knowledge. I'm like, I see what you did there. I bet did not go unnoticed. <laughs> we got to do those plays on words, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> So I found Chloe on Instagram. I don't really remember exactly how I came across you. I'm sure it's from one of the other financial accounts that I follow. I love talking all things money, finances, investing. And so when I stumbled upon your profile, I was immediately drawn in. I was like, I have to follow this girl. She well, for one, she has the best reels. They're hilarious. <laughs> and I know uh, thank you. I know you're known for you say your wonderful dance moves. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's almost an insult to dance moves to call them dance moves, but my wonderful dance attempts. I would let's <laughs> we can call it that. <laughs> So as I started kind of taking in her content, I just knew that I had to have Chloe on the show because the way she talks about creating wealth is very different than a lot of the other financial accounts that I follow and the way she approaches 
building wealth and teaching wealth is unique. And so, Chloe, I would love to start with you sharing your story because you just posted a reel, well, at the time of this recording, you just posted a reel that said in the last four years, you went from being stressed about money, knowing very little about investing and living paycheck to paycheck to now having a net worth of 300000 a year's worth of an emergency fund, and peace of mind when it comes to money. So I would just love to hear kind of where you began and what the catalyst to change was for you. Like, what was that moment where you were like, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to learn this. And what propelled you then into wanting to teach it? Yeah, I, um, I, a lot of things, to be honest. So I, for most of my life, kind of identified as somebody who was just bad with money. I wasn't interested in math. I wasn't interested in numbers. And I just kind of assumed as a member of the creative community, you know, I studied English and Spanish in college and had an emphasis in creative writing. I just kind of accepted my fate or assumed my fate would be constant struggle with money, with, you know, income, trying to figure out how to get by while pursuing uh, a career that traditionally really doesn't pay a lot. Um, and so it was kind of like this belief about myself that really did not allow me to explore outside of it. It was like I had accepted my reality. I was not interested in learning skills or op opening myself even to the possibility that I could learn those skills. And that, um, that kind of followed me in, in college, what I, for most of my life, I've struggled with anxiety and depression. And in college, it really reared its head and it became a really the worst it's ever been. And that translated often into me looking for ways to find immediate relief, even if that immediate relief was not fixing the issue. It was just that like hit of dopamine and a lot of us, I'm sure even your listeners can relate to impulse spending and buying to feel a different way. And that was one of my drugs of choice uh, when I was really going through that. And I didn't have any money, but I would buy something and spend a ridiculous amount of money only to then get home and, and have panic attacks over how I was going to pay rent. And this kind of cycle that I kept going through, no matter what I did, it taught me that I didn't think I could trust myself. I thought I was not the best person to manage my own money. I thought that really the solution didn't lie in me going out and developing those skills because I just thought you either had it or you don't. It, it really made me think, okay, the solution is me finding someone to do this for me. So meeting somebody uh, in a romantic relationship who's got their stuff together so that then I can essentially leech off of them and, you know, have them control it all for me. Unfortunately, that belief, which um, I, uh, I held on to for a while, really led me down this path of relying on other people for security. And that I think we all know is not a, a great situation to be in because relying on somebody else for our security, I think often puts us in a vulnerable place. And that was reality for me. I dated a lot of people who were not good, uh, who would take advantage of the situation and who I just kept hoping, you know, would change or be the saving grace to help me in my own path. But uh, a very, very long story short, uh, it ended me up in some abusive relationships as well as just some situations that were pretty dangerous for me. And it was really because of money, because I did not prioritize that. I did not decide to essentially take ownership of that aspect of my life. And eventually when I had gotten through the last toxic relationship I was in, I it was October or it was 2018 and I had really gotten tired of it all. And I just had to have this moment where I was 15K in credit card debt because of this person. I had had to spend extra months living with them because I couldn't afford to leave even after we broke up. And I just, I, I was tired of putting myself in those situations. And so I had this moment where it was like, Chloe, dumber people than you have figured this out before. So we have to try, like we have to figure out 
how to do this. And slowly but surely, I was able to start really learning about personal finance. And once I started learning, like so many of us who eventually become educators, I just became obsessed with it because I saw personal finance as kind of this golden ticket to the freedom that I wanted and the life that I wanted. And um, you know, a few years later, obviously it has really transformed my life. But um, I think what the catalyst was was just getting to a point where I was so sick and tired of my own uh, my own circumstances that essentially I had not to blame the victim or anything along those lines, but the mindset of believing that I didn't have control and that I couldn't learn these things had really gotten me into that situation. And so I had to dig deep and say, Chloe, the, there's no other option. This isn't working. Look at where it has gotten you. And do you want to keep repeating this pattern for the next 10, 20, 30 years? And the answer is no. And so I was just like, all right, let's just try. And uh, I think the power of the word try is often overlooked because allowing yourself to just try kind of takes the pressure off where it's like, okay, whether or not I succeed, at least I'm trying. And if I'm trying, then hopefully I'm making these small strides that are getting me closer to where I want to be. Okay. Oh my goodness. I have so much. There is so much we could dive into just off of what you just said. And but... I'm like, here, here, let me unpack my trauma for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we could. I, I do want to right now, because you brought it up right from the beginning. I do want to talk about money mindset, money identity, money beliefs, because you said that straight away. And that is something that I am incredibly passionate about. It's something that I love to teach and mentor on because I feel like it is so often overlooked, right? Mm -hmm. Like we focus so heavily on strategy, on taking action. And we don't realize that, you know, I teach that in order to create lasting change, that change has to come from the inside first. Like we have to change our thoughts and our beliefs and our stories and really kind of start to shift our identity in order for those actions to really make an impact and stick around. And mm -hmm. so you were talking about how you had, you know, this belief that because you were creative, because you were wanting to go down this certain career path, that you just never were going to make money. You had that belief. You had this belief that um, you were bad with money, which is such a common belief, especially among women. Typically, you know, if you think back like a hundred years, women did not handle money. We, we have, we are very new to handling money, understanding money, being in charge of our own money. And so it is very, very common for women to kind of remove themselves from money, similar to what you said you did, and, and just look outside of themselves for that security with, you know, marrying a wealthy man or mm -hmm. getting into a relationship with someone who's going to provide for you. It's so, so common because we haven't been taught about money. You know, most of the time parents don't teach about money, so we don't know about money. Then we're women. We have these past um, generational beliefs about money. We haven't been handling money for very long. And so we, we're scared, right? Like we don't put ourselves in situations to learn about money. We remove ourselves from those situations. I know so many women who are like, oh, my husband handles the money. Oh, my husband handles right. the money. And they don't even have the confidence to insert themselves into that situation and learn about money and ask questions about money. So, you know, the mindset we have and the stories we tell are so incredibly powerful and they lead to certain behaviors. So what would, I would love to get your take on money mindset and what role you feel like money mindset, money beliefs, and like the identity that we have around money plays in this kind of a money transformation. I, I think it's huge. I mean, not only in terms of everything that you just said, but we also have the societal expectations that are ingrained in us from such an early age. Uh, and it just feels like the finance space, the personal finance space, it's like a gate kept world for dudes and kind of breaking that down and addressing 
obviously the societal aspect of it and understanding how that impacts us, but also looking inward to, okay, based off of the society I grew up and what are some of the false beliefs that exist within me? And that's why, you know, in everything that I do and in my free education and my paid education and and all the things that I do, I always start with mindset first. It's like, we don't just dive into looking at your, you know, spending and your net worth. We look at what are your beliefs around money? And sometimes those beliefs are so ingrained in us that we don't even realize they exist. And so it's really asking the right questions to start to undercover those beliefs. One of my favorite questions and the number one question that I ask on the Money Bear podcast, it's at the end of every single episode, is you know, what's your very first money memory? Because the very first money memory really, you can see how it transforms and kind of guides your beliefs around money throughout the rest of your life. Like my very first money or money memory was a memory of my parents from a very young age would give me and my brothers uh, an allowance. And they were like, you know, you can either save it or you can spend it. And I, with like my dollar a week at the time would always go with my mom to the Kmart and I would spend my dollar and I'd buy like those little makeup, like wax makeup things that are always hanging at the end of the aisles that was like melted and forgotten about in 24 hours. Meanwhile, my brother, uh, he would save his dollars. He was really good at just kind of hoarding his cash. And honestly, all my brothers were. And because of that, they were able to buy cool things. Like my brother bought like this cool robot toy. And I'm like, oh, that's so unfair. Why can't I do that? And I started to believe even at that super young age that, oh, well, I guess girls are just bad with money and boys are good with money. And so again, it like informed this identity I had created for myself not again, not questioning if that was true or not, just believing it as fact and then never unpacking it. So I think the only reason I was eventually able to address those false beliefs is because of all the personal work I did on myself leading up to the point where I did then have to address my money beliefs. Because it's like, it's not like I I got out of these abusive relationships and I was suddenly like, you know what, I'm going to get my money right. That's the solution to everything. I'll a lot of therapy happened to help to help me understand my own beliefs about myself and my value of myself that then eventually translated into this ability to look inward on these other obstacles like finance. Wow. I mean, so much of what you said is so impactful. When you think about money beliefs, you're right. So often we don't even realize what our beliefs around money are because they're so ingrained in us. And they've been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And what I've found is there really are like these bubbles when it comes to people's reality with money. Because if you look at the statistics, most people tend to make about the same amount of money as their parents made. And they tend to surround themselves with people who make about the same amount of money, which Mm. means they're just reinforcing what their money beliefs are. So they're really not exposed to any other reality with money. So it is very easy to just be like, well, this is the way it is, right? And to never never question it. And so I think the first thing we have to realize is there are so many realities when it comes to money. There are so many different beliefs you can have, so many different stories you can tell, so many different realities that people live. And when you open yourself up to that, then it's like, okay, what then I can look at? Well, if this doesn't have to be the belief, what are some other beliefs? But right. it is, it's so ingrained in us that oftentimes we don't even realize that there's another choice, that there's another way that we can live when it comes to money. Mm-hmm. No, 1000 bajillion percent. And Again, it goes back to starting to ask the right questions because I think so many of us are not even sure what our money beliefs are. So that's step one is what are your money beliefs? Figure out like what are the beliefs you have around money? Write it out, brain dump it. And so that you can look at those beliefs and then identify which of these beliefs are helpful and which of these beliefs are not helpful because we all live in our own delusions. Like I uh, I love the book 
You're a Badass by Jen Sincero, because it, it t- essentially talks about this idea of we all are in our own delusions, whether our delusions are that we are amazing and wonderful and capable of achieving anything we put our mind to, or if we're delusioned in the fact that we think we're crap and we're terrible and we have no skills and blah, 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 blah. Either way, both both are these extreme levels of delusion, but one is helpful and one's not. So it's like if you're going to be delusional, you might as well be delusional in a way that's actually helpful, you know, and, <laughs> and like, I love and, that. And here's, you know, and it, it just kind of takes this. It, it makes it less serious. It makes it a little bit more playful to be like we're living in our own delusions. Why not choose the delusion that helps you? And we are. Like I said, I mean, I think sometimes we get caught up and there's only one reality. And that's just not the case. <laughs> there are, no, there's there are so many different realities all going on at the same time. I know one thing I used to say. Um, I lived in LA for quite a few years after I graduated from college, and you know, celebrity life and all of that. I'd be like, they just don't understand reality. And now, when I look back on that, I'm like, no, that's not the case. They were living a different reality than I was. Living. <laughs> like, right, that, we were both so living. <laughs> realities. They just were very different realities. And so you can, you know, you do have a choice. You can create any sort of reality you desire. And when you realize that you open yourself up to then these types of questions and really looking at to bring identity into it, because we all have a certain identity with money, who we believe we are with money, how we believe we are. And I know you mentioned, you know, you just thought from a very young age from experience and just watching your brothers, you came to this belief that just girls are bad with money. And that belief was probably reinforced by society because, you know, society shows us Lots of things about women with money, not just women are bad with money, but women who are wealthy are bitches, women who are wealthy can't have a family, you know. We have all these things that are portrayed to us that, whether you realize it or not, really do get ingrained in you subconsciously and can really affect how you show up when it comes to money. So I love that we started here, and I love that that is what you begin with because, in order to create lasting change, we do have to really address that internal environment first. Otherwise, we're basically just like hitting our heads against a wall. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people, I think, struggle with making changes around money is they try to just take action. They try to just change what they're doing, but without changing that underlying belief system and that underlying identity, they're basically like going up against a wall. They're not going to make any progress. So thank you for going down that route. I love that we started there. Now, I know that you are known for lazy investing. This is what you call it, lazy investing. And when I read about that, I was like, I, I have to learn more about this. I love investing. I love finance. I love personal finance. So can you please let's dive into what is lazy investing and how does someone invest this way? Yeah. So lazy investing is the idea that the only time we get rewarded for being lazy can be with our finances. And lazy investing takes this idea of no longer worrying about what's happening in the stock market every day, no longer trying to time the market and buy individual stocks and try to get the best returns possible. Lazy investing looks at the studies that have been done that show the more effective way is the lazy way, which is to buy solid diversified investments through the form of index funds and to hold on. That's it. That's all you got to do. You don't have to be paying attention to what the stock market is doing every day. You don't have to, uh, you know, try and time things. You don't have to read the Motley Fool every morning. Instead, you set your portfolio up by using index funds, something that's mirroring what the market is doing. And by doing that, you actually are more likely to do better than the people who are spending way more time taking on way more risks trying to keep their portfolio active by watching the stock market. It's like, it's what people think of when they think of investing. If they, if they haven't yet, 
you know, dove in, d- dove in, divin in, d- dived in. <laughs> oh my gosh, like, this is so funny. I don't know funny. what the verb is. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> because I was, oh my gosh, this is just like one of those serendipitous moments. I literally um, Googled have dove or have <laughs> dived this morning. Oh my God, what was the answer? And I was like, have dove sounds wrong. That doesn't but sound right. You can say both. It can be no have, way. Have dove or have dived. Have dived. Weird. That's not. I, there's <laughs> got to be a better way of saying that because that just does not sound good. But essentially, what I was trying to say is, <laughs> if you have not yet educated yourself on how the stock market truly works, then a lot of people's perception of what investing is is what they've seen in media. It's like the Wolf of Wall Street. It's the dudes on Wall Street screaming at each other, wearing these headsets, looking. at at these complicated charts. And in reality, for most people, that is not only ineffective and inefficient, but it's also totally not necessary. So that's really what lazy investing is all about is showing folks like what is the what is the research behind it? And how can you apply it in a way that you really don't need to spend a lot of time managing your portfolio, you don't need to spend a lot of time worrying about what the stock market isn't doing. And the benefit is that not only will your portfolio do better, but you'll also be able to not spend a lot of time managing it. Okay. So I have women listening and they're like, this sounds right up my alley. I'm down. Lazy investing sounds like my thing, but the stock market terrifies me. Like Mm -hmm. how, how does someone get started with lazy investing? Like where would you recommend what's step one? Step one, I think, is educating yourself. Um, I can't skip that step because I think it's so important. However, educating yourself can take a long time or it can take a short time, depending on however you decide to go educate yourself. Um, So we don't want to be waiting to invest while we're spending our time educating ourselves. And so the solution of how do I get started investing today? I'm listening to this podcast. I want to get started right freaking now. What do I do? Well, you have two main options. You've got target date funds or you've got robo-advisors. So target date funds are essentially these pre-packaged portfolios that are already diversified that if they are indexed, you'll hear the word index a lot when I'm talking about lazy investing. And to break that down, index is just think of it as a group of different investments. That's it. That it's just the complicated word for a very simple thing, an index. So when you hear the S&P 500 index, all an index is 500 of the largest companies in the U.S. grouped together. So we look at what is the performance of that grouping of different stocks. Um, But target date funds, especially index target date funds, are going to have multiple different types of funds inside of that one target date fund. And so think of a fund as like, if I was going to buy one stock, I'm buying one chocolate bar. But if I'm buying a fund, I'm buying an entire bag of chocolates. So within that fund, it's going to have, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of different stocks inside of it, instead of just buying one chocolate bar. So when you're buying a target date fund within that fund, there are more funds. So you're buying like the biggest bag of chocolate you could ever possibly buy. But what's cool about it is a lot of us already have target date funds in our 401ks, our 403bs. But the idea is that you can look at, okay, what is the year I want to retire. Maybe it's 2060, maybe it's 2050. You'll go into your 401k or your Roth IRA and you'll look, okay, what target date fund here matches the date that I want to access this money, aka for most of us in retirement. And then when you pick that target date fund for the year that you plan to retire, which it doesn't mean that if you decide to retire early, you can't access this money. It's just that portfolio is designed for that year. Um, that fund is going to contain thousands of different investments inside of it and some bot like it's going to be stocks and it's going to be bonds. And then the closer you get to that target date, it's going to slowly start reallocating your portfolio, aka selling off some stocks to buy more bonds or buying more bonds to even out with the stocks that are in the portfolio to essentially switch from wealth accumulation to wealth preservation the closer that you get to retirement. So you don't have to do anything. The only thing you have to do is pick the target date. That's it. And then that target date fund is going to do all of that for you. So the best target date funds that I have 
I've seen are the ones that are over at Vanguard, um, just because they're very low fee and they essentially are a three fund portfolio, which uh, is a boggle head original. Y'all who are listening don't necessarily need to know what a three fund portfolio is. Just you need to know that it's very well diversified. You're going to get all the exposure and diversification that you need. And you only had to buy one target date fund to do that. So that's something that folks listening, you could start right away while you continue to educate yourself uh, so that eventually someday, if you're looking at the target date fund and you realize, eh, this isn't like the allocations that I want, I want to be a little bit more aggressive or I want to be a little bit more conservative, you can make that change. That's why the education part is so important, in my opinion. Um, but the other option is kind of more of a modern day target date fund, which is robo-advisors. Now, robo-advisors are going to charge you a fee. Target date funds charge you a fee as well. As long as they're an index target date fund, they're going to be very low fee. But a robo-advisor takes the idea of a financial advisor and turns it essentially the idea is that you can tell this robo-advisor a bunch of different things about you and then they will spit out what they think the ideal portfolio is for your goals and your time frame. Again, all you have to do is go in, enter your details in and you know, if they offer you a portfolio or suggest you a portfolio, then you decide if you want to accept it or not. A lot of robo advisors do also allow you to customize things. If you're like, I like what you did here, but I want a little bit more domestic US stock and a little less international stock, it will allow you to do that. Like specifically, I know Betterment will allow you to uh, customize. I believe Wealthfront will also allow you to customize, but there's a lot of different robo advisors out there. And the nice thing about a robo advisor is that Instead of dealing with a person who, when dealing with a financial advisor, there's a lot of good ones out there. There's even more bad ones out there. And sometimes it's really hard to know if they have your actual best interests in mind or not, uh, and unless you're working with a fiduciary, which a lot of people don't even know to ask that question. But the robo-advisor is an algorithm. The robo-advisor is never going to try and sell you something that you don't need because it's an algorithm. They're going to take the information and spit back out a portfolio for you. And then the other thing is you're not going to be paying nearly as much in fees as what you would pay for a traditional financial advisor. So Usually, from what I've seen for robo-advisors like Betterment, like um, Wealthfront, the fee is about 0.25% uh, per year, and that's based off of your overall portfolio, which is like a quarter of what a traditional financial advisor charges you. So it's still a fee. It's significantly less than a financial advisor, um, but there are also some free ones out there. So like M1 Finance is a free robo-advisor that is available, um, and then you've also got some that will just charge you a subscription fee like Elevest, which is a investing app that was designed by women for women. I believe their, their investing uh, fees are, they range from like $5 a month all the way up to $9 a month. The last time I looked, it might be, it might have changed in the last year or so. But so uh, if you do go the robo advisor around, I do still encourage you to continue educating yourself because you never know if you're going to want to make changes someday. If the robo advisor, you know, decides to try and sell you something, you kind of want to understand what those things are. That way you can make decisions that are best for you based off of your own education. So I always, always, always highlight and emphasize the importance of self-education, even if you are using a target date fund, even if you are using a robo advisor, because there's going to be times in life where you need to have that education. And you guys, education gives you confidence, like knowledge and information give you confidence. You're going to feel so much more confident with these things when you know the basics, when you know what you're talking about, when you know what all of this means. But I love that, Chloe, you are giving tips that the woman listening can implement today. Like mm -hmm. these are very, very simple. You can do it from your home. It's not going to take much time and you can get started right now. I love that you mentioned Vanguard. My husband and I use Vanguard. We've been very, very happy with Vanguard. And I think the cool thing about index funds is they are so diversified, which is really, really key. You want a lot of diversity because then, you know, if you have one one area, one industry that's experiencing a dip that's leveled out by another industry that's experiencing a spike, which you don't get when you're investing in single stocks, right? Like it's right. much more risky when you're investing in single stocks. So um, ladies, 
Take Chloe's advice. If you have not started investing yet, this is a great place to start. One question that I thought of as you were talking was someone might be sitting here thinking, okay, I already have a 401k that I'm investing in. I already have a Roth IRA that I'm investing in. Do I need to be doing this too? (laughs) Well, it all depends on your goals. Um, So do you need to is going to determine is determined based off of how much do you need to have in order to be able to retire, which everyone's different. There's not like a set amount of money that everyone has to have in order to retire because it all depends on well, so, so many different factors. It depends on what uh, income you want to live off of in retirement. It depends on if you plan on having any housing expenses in retirement. It depends on how much social security, if you have any pensions, there's just a lot of varying factors. One of the simplest uh, and and actually slightly conservative rules that a lot of us use is called the 4% rule. And the 4% rule basically dictates that in order for you to be able to retire, you need to be able to pull out 4% of your entire investment portfolio every year, adjusting for inflation, uh, and you'll never run out of money. So for example, if you save a million dollars, well, 4% of that means you could take out $40,000 in the first year of retirement, and then every year you adjust as you go. Uh, The reason I say it's actually conservative is because the 4% rule originally when it came out was actually closer to 5%, but uh, the the thing that stuck was the 4% rule just because it's easier in the media to announce that. Um, because it was, I think it was like 4.8% or something. I can't remember what the exact number was because, uh, money with Katie actually did a podcast episode on this, which I found truly fascinating. So shout out to money with Katie. Um, but that will give you at least a ballpark. And then I always like to look at other calculators as well, because, uh, you'll get a range. So if you, one of my favorite online retirement calculators is, uh, the bank retirement calculator with inflation likely you know you'll you'll see a different number than what you use with the four percent rule just because like i said the four percent rule is a little bit conservative um but it gives you more variables to play around with um the biggest thing i will say is that i think one of the biggest mistakes that i see with people using the four percent rule is that they base the amount of income they think they'll need in today's dollars instead of what is the amount of income I think I will need in my first year of retirement, which if you are retiring in 25 years, that is going to be a very different number than what you would need in order to be able to retire today. So that is one thing to keep in mind. That's why I also like the bank rate retirement calculator, because it does help adjust that what money do I need in today's dollars? How do I adjust that for uh, anticipated inflation over the next 25 or so years? Um, So first determine what is that, and then you can kind of reverse engineer it. So, okay, if I need $1.5 million, how do I, how much do I need to invest every single month in order to reach that goal? Uh, The tool that all finance creators use is called the compound interest calculator uh, that's on investor.gov, I believe is the website, but you can type in your browser compound interest calculator, and that will allow you to play around with your numbers and to determine, am I investing enough right now? So the very first thing that you'll do is you'll put in your initial investment, which is whatever you have invested right now, what is the total value of your investments? Uh, And then below that is an option for monthly contributions. So what I would suggest is start with whatever you are currently contributing, just so you can see these are the numbers that I'm heading towards. Uh, And if you know you can rely on your employer match, include your employer match in there as well. And then the below that is the time frame. So how long do you have until retirement? Do you have 25 years? Do you have 30 years? Do you have 10 years? And I want to put whatever that number is. And then below that is what your estimated interest rate is going to be. And obviously, or I guess not obviously to everybody, but um, there's no set amount of interest rate you're going to get in your investments. It's just a concept we use to kind of help explain it. But uh, as you want to put in there, what do you think on average you're going to earn? Now, how to determine that is going to depend on what you're invested in. But I would say there's anything from you could probably safely assume anything all the way from 6% all the way up to 8%. Uh, you know, if you want to go down to 5%, it's a little bit conservative, but it will, you know, that means that if you're going for that, you'll be a little bit safer. Whereas if you were assuming 10%, that's probably uh, it's probably too much. The likelihood of a 10% average annual return is is pretty slim for most people, but uh, that will help you see, 
am I on track for retirement based off of the number I first found in terms of determining what do I need to be able to retire? And then the second point of, am I investing enough? If you see, mm, I'm not hitting those goals that I discovered when I was doing the bank rate retirement calculator, well, then you know you're going to have to invest more at some point. So ladies, this is where you have work to do. Yes, <laughs> it's you homework. Work, <laughs> you thought you had work to do in learning about investing. This comes, well, you can get started investing pretty quick, but this is where we really have to figure out what do we want, right? Yeah. Like, when do we want to retire? Do I want to retire at 65? Do I want to retire at 50? Do I want to retire at 45? And what, yeah. how much do I want at that point? to live the kind of lifestyle that I want to live. And then you can start playing around with the numbers and figuring that out. But I think this is where we really have to tap into that vision, that vision of what we mm -hmm. desire our lives to really look like at that age. Like what are our goals? What are we really shooting for? Because those are going to be the things that really determine what you put in to all of these calculators. So this is where we get to do some soul searching of like, well, I don't want to be working until I'm 65. I don't want to be working right. until I'm 55. You know, I want to be able to have the freedom to travel and and do other things. And this is how much money I want to have. And then these calculators will just spit that out for you. They'll let you know, like, this is what you should be investing. Now, I know this is a loaded question. And <laughs> I, I, I have an idea what your answer is going to be. But I wrote it down anyway. How much should I invest? And I'm not looking for a monetary amount. I'm thinking about, maybe I should just tell you what I'm thinking about. Yeah, tell, so, me, tell me what your context you is. Did, uh, I think you did a reel where you were talking about how you recommended that everyone, or not everyone, but your recommendation was that you have about a year's worth of an emergency fund and then you invest the rest. Is that is that correct? Oh, no, no, no. Your belief or so, what is your belief? <laughs> no, most people don't need a year emergency fund. So, okay. I so not even a, a year, guys. <laughs> no, I have a year emergency fund as a self-employed person. So that's different. Um, most people need between three and six months. You could go all the way up to nine months, but you really don't need a year emergency fund until you get close to retirement. Once you get to close to retirement, then you probably would likely want closer to two years of an emergency fund just to really help when the stock market's down, when you're seeing volatility and things like that to give you some more flexibility. But most folks only need three to six months of expenses. And to determine kind of where you fall in that range, the recommendation is if you're a two income household, you can have three months of your emergency expenses. And if you are a one income household, you probably want to be closer to six. If you are self-employed, if you're in a volatile industry, if you have a lot of uh, swings in income, then that's where you could start to consider nine to 12 months. But again, it's everybody's situation is going to be different. The very minimum is you want to have three months. Now, three months, keep in mind, is three months of your bare minimum expenses of what am I actually going to be spending on if I don't have any income coming in, if you know everything dries up. So that should be a smaller amount of money than if you're making you know, your full income, because obviously if we're not bringing in any money, we probably will make changes in our own spending, hopefully. Um, so that's the first thing. And then your, what was the second half of your question? Um, I think you said then you would recommend that you invest anything above oh. and beyond that. Really? So your question is kind of like, how much money, how much cash should I keep on hand? Is yes. what it sounds like. Yes. 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 Okay. <laughs> love. I love that question because it impacts women even more than it does men. Women hold more of their assets and cash than men do. Um, I would say that, that your emergency fund shouldn't be invested. It should be in a high yield savings account so that you have easy access to it. I wouldn't even put it into a CD. I would put it into a high yield savings account. Um, the only other cash that you should have on hand is something that like if you have some short-term savings goals or if you have some midterm savings goals. So if you have something where you need to access the money, the full value of the money within five years, likely that shouldn't be invested. Likely you want to keep that in cash or in a high yield savings account, maybe a CD depending on the, the use of it. Like for example, a CD, the reason I keep going back to not using a CD is because a CD locks up your money for a certain period of time, which it, I mean, it, it locks it up in that if you try to get out of the CD early, you'll forfeit the in interest and likely have a small fee. 
But uh, a high yield savings account, you're not locking anything up. You have access to it at any time. So we're, we're big supporters of high yield savings accounts here. Um, but the cash that you should have on hand is only going to be what do you need? What do you need within the next five years? So that could look like having sinking funds, which are uh, savings accounts for goals that are happening throughout the year, like vacations or car maintenance or pets or whatever you've got going on. Uh, and then you may have cash on hand for a home down payment, a car down payment, whatever it is that you're saving for in the near future. Everything else, if if you'll just have money sitting around that is not assigned a job, it should probably be invested. So everything that is not assigned why I guess you would ask yourself, why am I keeping this in cash? Is it because I'm afraid of investing? Well, then, then it shouldn't be in cash. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and if you're afraid of investing, I promise you, education takes away the fear without a doubt. So you mentioned women tend to hold on to more cash. I'd love to hear your perspective. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's the same reason we talked about earlier. Women have really been left out of the conversation for a long time. And it's only recent in the last 30, 40 years that women have started to be pulled into the conversation and the education has been more accessible. Uh, you know, it's not just people who are already experts or have been experts at money for such a long period of time. They don't know how to dumb it down for an average Joe. Um so I think that's a big part of it. But also, I mean, women could legally be denied access to credit back in the 70s. So again, we still are really, really new to this when you compare our ability to manage money and the amount of time we've been allowed to manage our own money versus men. So I think that that is huge, especially to just think about it like our our own moms. Our moms, uh, if 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 you're a millennial or if you're a Gen Z, uh, well, if you're Gen Z, your parents are probably millennials. But um, millennial women specifically think about our moms. Our moms were like one of the first wave of women who had access to credit, who wouldn't be legally declined a mortgage. Uh, that's two generations. That's it. Three. We're going into three, going into four with alpha generation. So we've been able to manage our own money for such a short period of time and all the education about investing has been geared towards men. So now with more access and more education out there, I think we'll start to see those numbers shift. And what I also think is interesting and I think is very hopeful is that women are much more likely to hire a coach, take a course, get the education that they need and ask for help than men are. Men are a lot more likely to just be like, oh, I can figure this out myself. So hopefully we'll eventually see women even surpassing those uh, those data points uh, for wealth building versus uh, our male counterparts. I attest to that. My husband is <laughs> very much that way. <laughs> right. You know, it's. It's like it's uh, it's and I I will say I don't think it's men's fault as a whole. I think it's, again, the society and the societal expectations we place on men where it, it's it's almost this expectation that you should already know you should be the expert. You shouldn't be like reaching out for help. You know, we see that in all areas of toxic masculinity, of men's own mental health, men's own personal care, those sorts of things. And it applies to to their own education as well, and, and which then trickles down to their finances. So, ladies, go back and listen to figure out if you didn't catch it the first time, if you did, if you aren't taking notes, if you're listening to this in your car, go back and listen. And Chloe walks you through figuring out how much of an emergency fund you should really have on hand. Then we've talked about the high yield savings accounts, which I know are a very hot topic right now. It seems like everyone's coming out with high yield savings accounts. And I know. <laughs> talking about high yield savings accounts and look into those and then invest the rest. Educate yourself really so that you feel confident, you feel knowledgeable, but you can get started so quickly, so easily. Now we're going to take a little bit of a, a U-turn here. And we're going to talk about one more thing that I wanted to talk about with Chloe before we wrap this up. And that is home ownership. <laughs> and <laughs> I wanted to talk about this because I saw a post that Chloe wrote a few weeks ago and she was talking about how home ownership is not for everyone. And I have to admit, as a homeowner... <laughs> 
the first time I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to comment and be like, what the heck are you talking about? Homeownership <laughs> is like the best thing ever. Um, but I didn't, I did not comment that in I'm, as I get older, I've learned that there's so much more gray area. Everyone's situation sure. is so unique. And so I sat down and I thought about it and I was like, you know what? She's right. Home ownership really is such an individual decision. And there's so much that goes into it. There's so much that makes it either a really positive choice or a not so positive choice. Um, so I wanted to get your perspective on home ownership, especially because then I saw a few weeks later, you did get approved for a mortgage. So it was like, kind of like this. <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to own a home. Now I'm approved for a mortgage. And I was like, wow, this is like an interesting dance that's going on here. So Literally, because I was I was dancing hear. in that video. So, um, yeah. So the I know exactly which video you're referencing because I posted it like two weeks before I got a prequalification uh, for a mortgage. That original post was a very old post. I think it was about two years old, and I just reposted it um, because, despite the fact that I am now actually looking to become a homeowner, I still stand beside the fact that. I think in the United States, we have a very, very large emphasis on in order to build wealth, you have to be a homeowner. And that if you are not a homeowner and you are a renter, that is a stupid decision and you're throwing away money on rent, which I think is really an unfair and damaging message because there are a lot of ways to build wealth. And as you mentioned, home ownership's not the right fit for everybody. And I think also when we look at how many people in the United States are house poor, meaning that they're spending more than 30% on their gross of their gross income, which is already a large percentage of our income, a lot of people are spending significantly more than that. That means you likely don't have enough left over for other types of investing, other types of things that you should be doing. And so that's when you get looped into this this label of house poor, essentially. And obviously that looks different for everybody because everybody's got different circumstances. But um, I, I feel like I could talk about this particular topic all day because I think it goes back to this idea of the American dream. And I think the reason a lot of people do extend beyond their means to purchase a home is because of the pressure of the American dream and that messaging of of, of what we already mentioned. Uh, and so I like to talk about the valid reasons to be renting. There are a lot of valid reasons to be renting. Number one, if you look at the housing crisis right now, home ownership is continuing to become more and more out of reach for the average American. And again, looking at that house poor, there's a really interesting article that came out not that long ago, just even looking at what were Americans across the board spending. The average is about 28% of your gross income on housing. But then when you look at places like California, uh, Washington, D.C., and Hawaii, that creeps up to 50 to 60% of your gross income. I certainly oh do. It's like wild, right? And there, there were several states where that is occurring. And it's like, with that message that home ownership needs to be like a priority, no matter where you're at, no matter what your circumstances are, I think that that contributes to people pushing beyond their means to to make that purpose, to not feel shame, to feel like they're doing the smart thing, when in reality, the smart thing may have actually been to continue renting so that they could free up more cash flow uh, and, and allow that ability to invest, invest elsewhere, to build that emergency fund, to know what their expenses are going to be every month. That's, um, that's I think, one of the most underrated components of renting is that you know exactly what your housing costs are going to be for whatever term your lease is for. It's not going to change. You're not suddenly going to have to replace a a roof or a, you know, deal with some something unexpected. Whereas when you're looking at your mortgage expenses and your your insurance ex expenses for home ownership, that's the minimum amount that you're going to be spending in a month. Everything else is on you. The, the maintenance costs, the capital expenditures if something were to happen, which we all know people who have horror stories of they bought a house and then a month later something terrible happened and then it had to spend tens of thousands of dollars to repair. Um, so I think you really have to look at it as a holistic 
expense beyond just what is the mortgage because often people look at the mortgage and they're like, oh my God, that's so small in comparison to, you know, the amount of money and the amount of which I'm getting for rent. But you have to look at, okay, this is the minimum that I'm paying every month. And likely with taxes, as well as with a lot of people have PMIs, with insurance, with everything else that goes into it, you're going to be spending potentially double, if not more. Um, so that's kind of where the the argument comes in and why I think it's important to talk about it. But also there's other situations too, where again, going back to what do you value? What is important to you? Do you value owning a home? Do you value being rooted in one place? Do you, Is that something that's aligned with the life that you want to have? And for a lot of people who are you know, younger or who are, you know, still, still figuring out where they do want to set roots in, it really wouldn't make sense for them to purchase a home to, you know, put up all the money for the closing costs and the selling costs if they're planning on staying at a property for a year or two. So that's why, uh, that's why I talk about it. And now that I have shifted into, again, those beliefs, those are still my beliefs. Um, for me, my circumstances have changed. So for a while, up until really this year where I had to have a real come to Jesus moment where I was like, <laughs> Chloe, Chloe, I think you actually do want to own a home because every time you get on Zillow, you're looking at homes instead of apartments. And the more and more I had to kind of release this fear of home ownership, I was like, okay, I do think I want to make this happen for my life. I do think I'm ready to set down roots. But a year ago, I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't in a position where it would have made sense for me. And I think it would have absolutely Absolutely. Had I bought prior to my search beginning this year, it would have been the wrong decision for me. So um, I don't know if I would have even started Clobear had I been, you know, extending myself in a homeowner situation, because we have to also think about like opportunity costs. We have to think about like if I'm dedicating that much time and money to owning a property, like is the the stress of dealing with you know maintenance and the stress of dealing with un, unexpected expenses is that going to be a strain on my energy and my finances and my peace and the answer is yes i mean that is a, a cost that may not be a monetary cost but could be an opportunity cost could be a well-being cost as well so so yeah i'll always be a a a, a destigmatizing renting supporter for sure <laughs> <laughs> I love so many of the points you brought up. And I mean, we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. I am glad you brought up house poor and talking about how, you know, the American dream can contribute to that. I also believe that this concept of keeping up with the Joneses can really contribute to that, you know, social media, seeing how other people are living and feeling like mm -hmm. we need to be keeping up with that. I will say for myself and my husband, homeownership has been an incredible path for wealth, but it has been kind of lucky, honestly. Like we right. bought, we bought in 2017, we have a lake property. So we bought before the pandemic, before the housing market really took off. Mm -hmm. And so we've seen the value of our home increase almost three times over the last right. five-ish years. But again, that is part of that is luck. Like we 100%. were just looking at the right time. And I'm not going to say that was skill because it wasn't, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And Well, and, and that's the thing is like, you can't replicate a world pandemic changing the, you know, the landscape of real estate for decades, you know, that's not, it's not something we can plan for. And, um, I think as you said, it's like, that's why personal finance is so personal. It can make sense. It can be a good decision, but it doesn't mean just like any blanket advice that's out there. It doesn't mean that that's like the only way and that that's the best way for everybody. Yes, completely agree. Well, this has been so incredible, so informational, so informational. You've given so many incredible, tangible tips that I know these ladies can walk away from this episode with and really just dive in and get started. So thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge with us. I would love for you to share where everyone can find you, 
how they can potentially work with you because I know you have gotten the wheels spinning for a lot of the women that All are listening. All the resources. Yes. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so if you are ready to, to start educating yourself and you want a lot of what I said in kind of a cliff notes version, I do have a free money guide. Um, everything's at clobear.com, which my bear is spelled B-A-R-E. So you can always find everything I'm about to mention there. Um, but I do have a free 30 page money guide that really gives a lot of what we talked about in cliff notes and gives you free templates and things like that. That's available at moneyrightguide.com. And then I also host a free investing class every month. Uh, we usually offer two to three times. So you can check that out at lazyinvestingclass.com. And of course, you can follow me on Instagram at Coach. And Chloe also has her own podcast. So oh, yeah, you can I always find forget. her there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that is called The Money Bear. That's why I'm like, I just have to reference clobear.com because everything's there. And sometimes I forget all the things that we have. <laughs> and you guys, I will make sure to include all of those links in the show notes. So all you have to do is scroll down. Everything you need to get in touch with Chloe will be there. Thank you, Chloe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been absolutely wonderful. I am so appreciative that you came on and yes, this has been spectacular. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, guys, we will talk to you at our next episode. Bye. Okay, you wealthy woman, real quick before you go, if you found value in today's episode, please subscribe, share this with your friends and leave me a review. Leaving a review is so simple, but I didn't know how to do it at the beginning either, so I'm going to walk you through it. All you have to do is whatever app you're listening to this podcast on, find this show, The Wealthy Woman, scroll down, you'll see stars, and with those stars, you can leave me a rating and review. I would love you so much for taking the time to do this. In all honesty, the reviews are what help the podcast get into the hands of other women desiring to create true wealth and manifest their dream lives. Okay, I'll let you get back to your day. See you next time.